this COVID thing. We get them on the ventilator, then we've got to get them off the ventilator. Will a tracheostomy help? Early? Late? I've got a discussion about this. Let's go listen. Hello everybody, uh, my name is Zudan Pithacherry, I'm one of the intensive care consultants in the Royal London Hospital uh, and in today's podcast we were going to discuss tracheostomies in patients with on the intensive care unit with coronavirus infections. I've got two people with me, I've got Dr Julia Hadley, one of my colleagues at the Royal London Intensive Care Unit who developed our local guidance which we had to put together very quickly as we were one of the first hospitals to be hit. And her guidance has been adopted by the British Laryngeological Association, gosh, um, as their guidance. We also have Brendan McGrath from Manchester with me. Uh, and Brendan is the national lead for tracheostomies. He's been leading on a lot of the guidances. And we were just going to discuss some of the uh, aspects of tracheostomies and the uncertainties, because many different centres have approached this in different, different fashions. Julia, I mean, I think one of the first things that I think we were talked a lot about was timing of tracheostomies, and we know that that still remains quite contentious. Um, do you want to talk us through your rationale for what you what you wrote and why? So what we've said in our local SOP is that we we felt as a group that a tracheostomy would be unlikely to be indicated earlier than about ten to fourteen days. Our feelings sort of going into this and with our early experiences of patients was that early on in their stay, they were they, they required quite intensive ventilatory support, high levels of FiO2, potentially high levels of PEEP, proning, various interventions, and that a tracheostomy at that stage wouldn't alter their course of their illness, um, wouldn't help to progress the patients and um, wouldn't liberate a ventilator either. Um, we felt it would also put the patients and the staff at unnecessary risk for no particular gain. So we felt that um, locally that a late, sort of later on in their course of illness where they were on a weaning trajectory but perhaps were very weak as a result of the use of um, muscle relaxants, um, prolonged ITU stay, prolonged period of ventilation, where perhaps as they were weaning, but their weaning was being impaired by the presence of an endotracheal tube and might be benefited by the presence of a tracheostomy. So that's why we provisionally put in a 10 to 14 day cutoff. And so not everybody agrees with that, right? We've, we, I can't, we won't name hospitals, Julie, but we know there are other hospitals in the London area who've gone for very early tracheostomies instead. Is that mm. I'd be really interested to hear their experience, actually, and what, what difference it's made to them. I mean, I don't know what you and um, Brendan think, Zidin, but I, I can't see how it would help us early sure. on. And I think proning patients with tracheostomies can quite often be quite challenging. So, uh, I, I, well, I mean, another from my... Oh, my, unfortunately, unfortunately, my experiences are the same as yours, Julia. Because that's on the same unit. But I mean, Brendan, what have you? What have you? What sort of uh, position have you guys taken, uh, both nationally and then within your own unit too? 
Yes, yeah, so um, locally we do something very similar to what Julie just described, but um, what we've been doing is very conscious of the experience of, of other people, notably in China, Spain, and uh, Italy, um, where they've they've you know they're a good few weeks ahead of, of, of where, where we've been at. And I think while we were planning for a big surge in people who were going to get intubated and, and mechanically ventilated, we've been doing a bit of background digging, trying to find out how people were were managing patients a little bit further down the line. There was certainly a group of hospitals, um, predominantly in Spain, that, that did quite a lot of early tracheostomies. Some of the uh, Italian centres did quite early tracheostomies as well um, in order to try and free up some capacity. So that there are some advantages in an early trachea that Julie sort of alluded to, but if particularly if you're running out of ICU beds, it can seem like an attractive option. Care can maybe be overseen by uh, non-ICU staff who maybe then don't have to manage quite so many pumps or manage sedation. The patient can maybe help a little bit with some of their nursing care if if, if they're a, if they're a little bit less dependent. Uh, but of course, you know, more awake patients can be a bit more tricky to manage. And, and if you're still very heavily ventilated dependent, as, as Julia said, things like prone ventilation and, and, and managing someone with a trachea on high ventilatory pressures can be just as problematic as, as someone who's still got an ET tube in. I think what we found with the course of this uh, COVID-19 disease is, is that patients who are sick and, and get ventilated, probably only about 50% of them, uh, if you look at the data from uh, China and Europe, are, are actually surviving. And so those centres that were doing a lot of early tracheostomies were finding pretty high death rates, not necessarily because of the tracheostomy, just because they were intervening in, in patients who still hadn't declared themselves, if you like. And so that experience of an early tracheostomy didn't play out so well for, for, for those sites um, that were doing it. And that was part of our thinking as well, Brendan, which was that since there was such a high mortality rate, if we did universally um, early tracheostomies, as, as you say, I, I didn't think it would liberate a nurse or a ventilator, which is our precious resource. But we felt we might be, um, exp it is a high risk procedure for the staff involved. And we felt that with such a high mortality rate, then we were exposing staff to risk in perhaps a patient that might not survive. Well, that's very interesting, actually, because both your approaches seem to be borne out, both your hunches are borne out by the ICNARC data, right? So the ICNARC data suggests a 50% mortality and social media discussions that, I mean, which, of course, are not referenceable, uh, point out that everybody seems to struggle with the ventilatory management of these patients. We're not unusual on this. There seem to be about 50 different guidelines as to how to do it. But one thing everyone agrees is that these patients are difficult to ventilate and early extubations often lead to reintubations. So it, perhaps it was just a very good call not to go down the early tracheostomy route. Yeah, and I think that was borne out in the experience for, from these other centres. So we, we were fortunate enough to get a little bit of intel from them, which I think has helped to uh, guide those those decisions. I mean, I think the bottom line is there doesn't seem to be a huge advantage in, in an early tracheostomy in those patients who are stuck on ventilators. It's, it's, it's not going to speed up their recovery. Yeah. So that kind of brings up, so we're talking then about having talked about you know, doing the tracheostomy and potential risks to patients of early tracheostomies. One of the big questions I know, Julia, you had, you've had to deal with and perhaps are still dealing with are, is the risk to staff of doing a tracheostomy. Mm. Do you want to talk just a bit about that? I mean, and I know different centres are taking a different approach, but in terms of the risk to staff, we we felt that 
when we considered the, the two alternatives that we had, which were either percutaneous technique or a surgical technique, a bit of local discussion amongst intensivists and surgeons and anesthetists, um, we felt that the aerosol generation was easier to control um, with a surgical technique, but just by a little bit of modification of the way that we conduct anesthesia and surgery and how the team um, coordinate and cooperate during the procedure. We felt that was a good way of minimizing the risk to staff compared to um, a percutaneous technique. The other reason for considering doing, deciding to go down the surgical route for all of our tracheostomies was we felt that um, skilled ICU staff who would be required to perform the percutaneous tracheostomies um, would be in short supply and quite quite stretched resource in any case. So, but I do know that one of our sister hospitals has left both options open for surgical and percutaneous, and they've written an SOP which covers both and modification of both techniques in order to minimise the aerosol generation. And the majority of our SOP deals with the practical aspects of the conduct of the procedure to minimise aerosol generation and maximise staff safety. Um, so, Brendan, you know, what do you, what do you, where, which, where, which sort of position do you, do you take on this? So, for actually insertion of the trachea. Uh, no, yeah, so, so the, the, the procedure, who does it? And where? Again, we've we've taken a lot of guidance from the experience from, from, from others here. And I think that there's no evidence to guide us. I think that's probably the first thing to say. I've been involved in like a an international group of, of surgeons, of, of interventionists, of interventional pulmonologists and people who do a lot of trackies. And I think the feeling is that a surgical approach offers a bit more control, uh, as as uh, Julia says. There are centres that have done a lot of percutaneous trackies, and certainly in China and Italy, we've spoken to centres who've, who've who've done that very successfully without seemingly any problems to uh, staff. There are some modifications which Julia alluded to. So um, I've seen for a percutaneous technique, for example, people. Not using a bronchoscope, which sort of limits your aerosol generating potential, but uh, I'm not sure that not using a bronchoscope makes a procedure safer. I, I think uh, the, the data I've seen would suggest that it makes it less safe. So I'm not sure electing to not use a bronchoscope is 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 a necessarily a good idea. If Paracol I could just interrupt for one second, Brendan. Yeah. Uh, just on the on the bronchoscope point. So if something went wrong during a percutaneous tracheostomy. And you said I didn't. I didn't use the bronchoscope. To my mind, I can't see that going through as an appropriate standard of care. You know, on a Berlin principle. Can you see? I mean, is that was that a fair statement? I think so. Yeah. And if you look at the latest version of the Intensive Care Society uh, FICM guidance on uh, tracheostomy, they make very clear recommendations that a bronchoscope will make the procedure safer. So uh, I think saying, "Oh, I'm not going to use a bronch to limit aerosol." Uh, generating potential, uh, I think, is a uh, quite a bold step, shall we say. I can see the rationale for it, but I think it w would be tricky, particularly, as you say, if something went wrong where you couldn't see what you're doing. I do know there are people out there who tell me they've been doing per trackies out bronchoscopes for many years, and in their hands it's very safe. But, uh, you know, I, I, as you say, I think if there was a problem, I think it's difficult to defend that. Okay, sorry, I just wanted to ask that question. Yeah. Do carry on. So the, the, the other sort of modifications the PERC technique have seen are where people are uh, leaving the uh, ET tube where it is in situ in the trachea instead of pulling it back or swapping it for something else, as perhaps you might in, in a, in a non-COVID case. 
and then putting the um, endoscope down beside the keel tube, sort of through the cords beside the tube, uh, to try and minimise the amount of airway manipulation that you have. I think one of the key messages that's come out of this COVID crisis is, is, is this isn't the time to start doing uh, slightly off-piece things. Uh, the, the, the people who seem to be managing these situations well are the, are the sites, centres and individuals that keep doing what they normally do and, and, and adapting it where necessary. So I think suddenly learning a new technique for your perk trackies is, 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 is not necessarily the way I would recommend. But I say I have seen some modifications to a perk trackie technique, which um, will potentially reduce this aerosol generating potential. For the surgical techniques, again, as, as Julius said, there are some modifications that, that you can make. But I feel once you've got the airway anatomy exposed and, 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 and the neck is open, a good surgeon can get into the trachea pretty quickly, uh, typically in under 60 seconds. And so that sort of suspension of, of, of ventilation where you, you've got no aerosols uh, potentially being generated and then a surgeon getting into the uh, airway quickly Re-establishing that sealed connection, I think on balance, would seem to be the, the safest way to do it in terms of risks to staff. Okay. Uh, and Julia, so you would talk, I remember having, uh, listening to your talk about some of the technical aspects the surgeons were going to go through and some of the debates you had. Do you have, would you have anything to add to it? I remember one thing that really stuck in my mind was the fact you talked about uh, how the surgeons often asked the ET tube to be pushed further in mm-hmm. to prevent aerosolization? I, I think this is probably quite a, a standard practice nationally, but certainly locally, all of us who are anaesthetic, because I've got a foot in two camps, I anaesthetize for a maxillofacial surgery list as well as working on intensive care. So I'm involved with both surgical and percutaneous techniques, which is why I, I think I got um, tasked with sorting out our local SOP. And what most of us will do is either at the beginning of, and I'd be interested, I imagine that Brendan does similar or his centre do similar, is that either at the beginning of the procedure or just before making the surgical, the tracheal window, the endotracheal tube is deliberately advanced so that it tip is as close to the carina as you can make it. The rationale for that is that the cuff of the endotracheal tube is distal to the tracheal window and well out of the way so that when they cut into the trachea, they should not puncture the cuff. And so that makes it safer. Um, whereas obviously with a percutaneous technique, you're withdrawing the endotracheal tube ordinarily to be out of the way of where the needle is inserted into the trachea. What And, and what we've uh, modified is that we, as soon as they're about to cut into the trachea, ventilation is paused just in case of inadvertent cuff rupture, so that if the cuff is ruptured, there won't be um, generation of lots of sort of respiratory secretions aerosolized into the surgical, into the surgeon's faces. So um, we pull ventilation, we pre-oxygenate the patient, make sure the tube is nicely advanced, pause ventilation whilst the tracheal window is formed. And as Brendan said, an experienced surgeon, and that's one of our criteria, is these are all being done by consultants with a lot of experience, should be able to cut into the form the tracheal window, um, have the endotracheal tube withdrawn out of the way under direct vision and insert the tracheostomy, inflate the cuff, um, connect all the tubing and resume ventilation with minimal desaturation of the patient. 
because they should be quite slick at that. Brenda, that sounds very much like in keeping with what most people would plan to do in theatre from what you're saying. Yeah, uh, the, the, there's a few interesting things that have come out from sort of di- discussions with other people who've been uh, d- doing this a few weeks ahead of us as well, just sort of building on what, what Bula just explained there. Um, there's a few key things that that, that sort of apnea moment where, you know, suspension of, of, of ventilation uh, following a period of pre-oxygenation uh, does seem to be a very sensible thing. And, and the more you think about it, you more you think, well, why don't we do that with all our trackies? Which, of course, some people may have thought of and, and, and might do anyway. Um, a, I think that's it, my normal technique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that it's, it's, it's really, really sensible. If you step back from that, though, um, some of our colleagues in other countries had experience where they got up to theatre and, and, you know, opened the neck, suspended ventilation, and the patient desaturated pretty fast. Um, and so that this this concept of, of, of a test of apnea has, has sort of evolved where, you know, the, the, the morning or the, the, the day before, in order to assess that a patient was physiologically ready to tolerate that that period of, 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 of apnea, you, you can simulate that pretty easily on the ICU um, just by pre-oxygenating them, uh, dropping the peat paps, and then um, suspension of ventilation. Now, that has its own implications, and, and you've got to know what you're doing, make sure you're not doing a great big valsalva, and, and the patient will no doubt recruit, uh, sorry, do recruit, um, but that's probably better than that happening up in theatre with all the logistical problems that, that, that you've had to undergo to, to get them to a, a, a location where you can do the tracky. Uh, and then if, if a patient does desaturate when you've got a big hole in their airway, then clearly that's that's not good for uh, all the staff involved and, 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 and may expose the patient to, to more unnecessary uh, airway interventions. So that this concept of, of a pre-theatre check, just to, just to sort of check the patient will physiologically tolerate that period of apnea seems uh, very sensible to me. I really like and, that. That's an excellent idea because yeah. we've, we've had a, pre, a criteria that the patient should be on less than 10 of PEEP and, and an FI2 of less than 40% in order to make it more likely that they'll tolerate a period of apnea and de-recruitment. But actually, the idea of doing that test uh, prior to taking them to theatres is logical and s- simply brilliant, actually. I like that. Yeah. We're going to, I'm going I mean, to add that to our SOP. <laughs> I think you've got to be a little bit careful with with writing uh, absolute figures in there. And and I know, again, from early days where perhaps some of our surgical colleagues were a little bit less keen on on doing tracheostomies, um, if you've got a rigid uh, FIOT or you've got a rigid criteria, um, you know, some of our patients who really need a tracheostomy, um, there may be a little bit of, 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 of flexibility there. So, again, I'm just... just be, be, some, of our, some of our patients with COPD, for example, yeah, they don't, they don't enjoy a PEEP of five, you know. Um, they enjoy a PEEP of ten. So that's always going to be their baseline, realistically. I think in our normal, outside of the sort of COVID pandemic, then, yeah, mo- most of us have a sort of... We all have a slightly different threshold, I think, don't we, of what PEEP and FIO2 we're happy to take patients to theatre for a tracheostomy on. And there's always exceptions. So, I mean, I remember our our obvious examples at the Royal London are the morbidly obese who constantly have a PEEP significantly above 10 and you then have to perform a tracheostomy from a starting PEEP of significantly above 10. But I think we wrote those in... Then none of our preconditions to doing tracheostomies are absolutes. They're guidance um, and to be discussed and agreed between 
the different members of the team, the ITU consultant, the anesthetic consultant, the surgical consultant. Um, but they were a guide just to make sure that we were doing these at, at an appropriate point and at a point at which they're more likely to tolerate the apnea and the de-recruitment. But obviously, yeah, they, they, none of the preconditions were intended to be absolute, just to sort of increase the safety and the confidence of the surgical teams, really. So the only other top tip that sort of come to light is, is that obviously you're trying to reduce the sort of aerosol generation, which, which can be contributed to by coughing while you're filling around with the airway. And, and, and again, one thing that's come out with these patients, a lot of them are on infusions of muscle relaxants and, and you certainly can get tachyphylaxis to, to, to some of these drugs. And so to your anesthetic colleagues or whoever's supervising putting in the trachea from the top end, if you like, is making sure that the patient is, is, is actually paralysed and, and using some sort of um, nerve stimulator or some sort of twitcher to make sure that, that, that they are actually paralysed. Because even though we, we've had experience of people going to theatre on a atricurum infusion or something and, and they still cough while, while you fiddle around with the airway, which is obviously what you're trying to avoid. So I think that's another sort of top tip for that period when you're in theatre, just to make sure they're, they're as paralysed as, 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 as they need to be. We've, we've included an additional dose of muscle relaxant prior to making the tra- tracheal window just to make sure of that as well. So one of the things that you both have talked about a lot is the surgical buy-in, uh, presumably from, mostly from ENT surgeons to MaxFAC surgeons. But I, I wonder if we could just talk a bit about that because there remains a lot of apprehension about uh, surgical theatre times, spread of droplets and, and, and so on. What am I orthopedic colleagues tells me that an orthopedic list can go through like 50 sets of PPEs if they're not careful. Um, how's it, how have you found both locally, Julia, and nationally, Brendan, the, the sort of the approach from our surgical colleagues and what advice would you give to colleagues trying to set up tracheostomy pro- protocols in their own hospitals? We didn't have any trouble, actually. Um, historically, locally at the Royal London, our tracheostomies are in the main done by the maxillofacial surgeons. And I think that's just historical because they were on site, whereas I think ENT used to be on a different site. But now we have both specialties on site. And in general, the majority of our surgical trachees are done by MaxFax. Um, But if there's a particularly challenging one or something that's been complicated, then the airway ENT surgeons get involved. But early on, we recognised we probably needed the involvement of both specialties and got together a working group which involved the clinical leads, for, well, a clinical lead and a senior from MaxFax and one of the senior airway consultants from ENT. Everybody had input into how we were going to do it. And we met a few times, discussed at length, refined the SOP conducted some tracheostomies on non-COVID patients uh, following the SOP and just uh, obviously anaesthetic colleagues were involved as well. And actually getting buy-in wasn't very difficult because everybody felt they had a stake in it and that they had a say in it. So it, was fun. it worked very well, actually. Um, Brendan, how about sort of the development of protocols and things nationally? As Julie's alluded to, it's, it's very much a team game. And, and uh, I think that includes our anaesthetic colleagues, people who work in theatres, the, 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 the scrub staff, the ODPs, and, and, and of course, the different surgeons uh, who will be involved. 
Uh, I think, understandably, there was a lot of anxiety about doing tracheostomies. And, and I think that wasn't helped by some of the early data where that was misinterpreted, I think, perhaps as, oh, trackies kill patients because they're not surviving. And I think, as we discussed a little earlier, you know, that, that there were reasons why those early tracheostomies weren't leading to, to, to better outcomes. And I think, clearly, there's been reports well published in this country and others of, of ENT surgeons uh, succumbing to COVID. Uh, I think importantly, to my knowledge, at least none of those none of those surgeons who were getting infected were, were getting infected because of exposure to aerosols while they were doing tracheostomies on uh, patients who'd be ventilated for, for, for 14 days. And I think that's an important message to, to sort of get across. And when you talk about infectivity, this is something that we're learning about all the time. If you look at the sort of timeline for these patients from uh, initial infection to developing symptoms, that's probably about five days. That, that that's probably when the the sort of the infectivity is 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 highest, where people are producing lots of copies of 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 the um, viral RNA that are detected by PCR easily. But then after sort of seven to ten days, I think seven days, about half of, of people have generated a, a, a detectable antibody response. Uh, by the time we're intubating them, uh, sort of typically around 10 days uh, following infection, probably 80% of patients have got an antibody response. And then by sort of day 14 post-infection, it's almost 90% of, of patients. And so the infectivity of these patients is, is reducing significantly over time. And so in terms of risks to healthcare staff, these haven't been quantified, but probably the highest risk airway intervention we're doing is, is, is when we're intubating them when they're critically ill. And there have been reports of, of, of prolonged detection of virus in the critically ill um, and, and, and that sort of curve of, of, of decay of viral uh, detection seems to be a little bit extrapolated in, in, in the critically ill patients. But certainly by the time we're, we're considering tracheostomies after 10 to 14 days, typically of, of, of ventilation, their infectivity is likely to be very low. Now, we haven't got a test or a combination of tests that, 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 that would tell you that. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we can, uh, you know, take off our PPE when we take these patients to theatre. But I think if, if you step back and look at some of the data that we've got around the way this virus is, is, is behaving and the, our immune response to it, then the infectivity around the time that we're doing these tracheostomies is, is, is probably a lot lower than, than when we first meet them. And so I think trying to engage our surgical colleagues and, and trying to understand some of this data with them uh, it, it, it's really helpful in in reducing some of that anxiety and and, and i think getting people on board and, and some again some of those early data coming out of china where, where they intubated a few people really late and, and there was like really high mortality you know almost 90 percent in some patients getting ventilated I, i've had these case series quoted at me and, and say, oh, there's no need to do tracheostomies these patients because they all die. And, and, and clearly, as, as we're experiencing ourselves, that isn't the case. So just trying to understand what data and what information is out there. And, and, and essentially, when you look at it, you come back to doing what we sort of normally do is that, you know, you wait 10 to 14 days. And if the patient looks like they're going to do, it's probably a reasonable thing to get on and do a trachea if that's what's in the patient's clinical best interest. And, and when I think people get their heads around that, there are some modifications for COVID, but it's it's not too far dissimilar to what we normally do, just with a bit more PPE. And I think the PPE is also the key to it, isn't it? Is is making giving the surgeons the confidence, the surgeons and the anaesthetic staff, the confidence that they are protected and that they've got appropriate 
PPE in the theatre environment. And we've said that actually all tracking, I, I think this is probably true for many, um, they've, they've now rolled this out for a lot of um, head and neck and airway surgery anyway, but all tracheostomies, whether they're in a known COVID patient or not, should be done with full PPE at the moment because of the high asymptomatic prevalence in the community. So, so it's making sure that the surgeons feel confident that they are adequately protected by the anaesthetic technique, the surgical technique and the PPE that they're wearing. Absolutely right. And, and, and this notion you, you leaned on earlier, Julie, about, you know, rehearsing what you're going to do, make sure that the PP that you're going to use is available, that you, you can see what you're doing in it, that, that you've got enough fidelity with, with, with the gear that you need to wear to do the procedure that you want to do. And then that, that, that role of simulation, uh, certainly locally and, and again, anecdotally from others, seems to be really important. You know, rehearsing how you're going to get into theatre, where you're going to put your gear on, which way around is the patient going to go, you know, that these additional steps that we need to do, how are you going to get the patient from the ICU to where you need to do it? You know, simple things that when people understand the flow, uh, the, the anxiety levels uh, certainly reduce. And I think what I'm hearing anecdotally for many centres is, is, is once they've done a couple of tracheostomies, actually everyone realises it's not too bad. It's just more of a faff than a, um, than a sport procedure. Great. So I have two more questions personally, okay? Um, one to, I guess, to Brendan, because I know Julia's answer this, uh, is that what do you think the role of ultrasound and sort of bronchoscopy is in the in percutaneous tracheos? Because you know that these are discussions that occur out there. Um, we don't use ultrasound to form percutaneous tracheostomies in our unit. Some of us do. And, <laughs> no, no, without a bronchoscope. No, no, not uh, not without a bronchoscope. You're right. I, no, we, so, so to be clear, we all I, I stand the front of the neck to look right. for blood vessels. Yes, okay. Uh, Sorry, to, Yeah, to my mind, that is considered to be part of a tracheostomy procedure. Yeah. But there are proponents who would turn around and say that a ultrasound is a good replacement for a bronchoscope. Okay, Brendan, any comment? I think. Practically, um, a an, an ultrasound probe that the footprint of the probe uh, in the space where you're trying to operate, uh, combined with uh, a needle uh, that you're trying to stick in the neck. Um, I personally find it quite challenging, technically challenging, to fit all that uh, stuff into a small space and, and, and see what I'm doing. Now, th- I'm sure there's people out there who are better than me at putting trackies in under ultrasound. So if you can do that... Um, safely and, and and in your hands you can get into the trachea all of the time then that's fine i think there's no data to, to show that it's 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 a safer technique uh similarly that there's no data no strong data that, that, that would tell you that, that using a bronchoscope makes it safer but i think anything that will help you get into the into the trachea and be sure you're in the trachea is uh is going to make the, the procedure safer now, people who argue against using a bronchoscope say it gets in the way, interferes with ventilation, and it doesn't actually guide you into the trachea. It'll tell you when you're in. It won't tell you when you're not in, other than the fact the needle hasn't appeared. So, uh, you know, if you boil it down to does a bronchoscope make the, the procedure safer, I think on balance it probably does, but it, it's not like a missile guidance system where it's going to guide you into the trachea. There are some other innovations out there, but they're very much at the development stage, trying to help people uh, locate the trachea with, with with a needle tip. And, you know, if you're good with ultrasound and, and you're confident that 
you can make it work for you, then I don't see any reason why it should be discouraged. But I think you're likely to need a bronchoscope anyway to check the position of the tracheal tube when you've finished. So I think a bronchoscope should be used during the procedure because I think it'll certainly help. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't feel too strongly, but I think a bronchoscope in summary would make things safer and ultrasound, I would suggest in addition, in, if in your hands that makes it safer, then, you know, there's no reason why not to use it. No, no, that's great. I mean, I, just, I think it's important to get, to get across the idea that you can uh, an ultrasound is an adjunct, but not a replacement yeah. for a bronchoscope. So, Brendan, we've had a long chat about the different aspects of putting the, putting the placing a tracheostomy, uh, but this is only really half the problem. And for many ways, it's the easy half because we know what we're worried about. We're worried about uh, risk to patient, risk to staff. And performing a, a safe procedure. At some stage, though, we're going to have to start talking about weaning and taking the tracheostomy out and the whole and that entire process, which we don't have a huge amount of knowledge about. For example, when we start deflating the cuff, how safe is this? Is this is, is this is aerosol generating as CPAP or high flow oxygen? In the course of the illness, we are assuming that this is down the line and the viral load is low. But we also know that a lot of our current uh, virological tests have poor sensitivity. What, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so it's that risks, uh, balancing the risks to staff of, of potentially aerosol uh, generating procedures, of which cuff deflation, if you're still attached to a ventilator, is, is certainly one of them, uh, versus the benefits to the patients. And, and certainly over the last probably five to 10 years, we're increasingly recognizing that if you get the cuff down on a tracheostomy and, and, and get the larynx rehabilitated faster, Patients seem to uh, recover faster. They can obviously vocalise, which helps a lot with with some of the non physiological aspects of of, of uh, recovery and from weaning. Um, but in in the COVID population, I think initially we're we're sticking with a cuff inflated closed system uh, wean, where we're going back, if you like, old school, where we would wean these patients with, with, with a cuff inflated, so a, a reduction in, in pressure support, either gradually or as, or as more of a sprint. And then when patients are weaned close to thinking about decannulation, that's when we're thinking about, can we get the cuff down? And when it comes to cuff deflation, you ask the question, what's that the equivalent of? I mean, in my head, that's the equivalent of, of somebody on C. I think you have to bear in mind that uh, not all CPAP uh, or, or non-invasive ventilator that we would use for a cuff deflation trial are equal in terms of what, what they'll generate. Most of the ventilators that, that, that we use for weaning our patients can generate really high flows, sort of uh, 50, 60 plus flows per minute in order to compensate for the leak that you inevitably get when the cuff is deflated, which is great for the patients, but probably not great for those staff working in those areas, particularly, as you say, when there's uncertainty about how infective these ex-COVID positive patients are because whether they are still able to, to shed virus in this sort of long recovery phase. So I think as a principle, wean with the cuff up when they're looking ready to get the cuff down, perhaps as a prelude to decannulation, either make sure the patients are on as little um, pressure support, as little CPAP as possible, or even tolerating periods of being ventilator free. If they're ventilator free, you can still manage them with a closed suction circuit. There's something called a Kelly circuit, which has been uh, advocated from a uh, respiratory physiotherapy uh, contact down in London, which you can find on the NTSP 
uh, website, which is a closed suction for someone who's not on a ventilator, um, cohorting these patients into ideally uh, groups of bays, which can be sealed. So like a four bedded bay or something like that, where you've got closed door access. And then as soon as the patients are clinically able to be ventilator free and you can successfully get the cuff down, get them decannulated. And I'd strongly recommend that that's a very much a multidisciplinary decision as much as you can. I know our speech and language therapy and physiotherapy colleagues are, are, are uh, concerned about endoscopy, sort of fees in, in, in these patients, which we would normally do. And I think we just have to be guided by our sort of clinical skills at the bedside about swallowing and, and, and laryngeal function for, for when they're ready to, to, to be decannulated and obviously looping in with your uh, ENT surgical colleagues. So it, it's a good time to think about a tracheostomy MDT, either for putting the trachies in or, or for that ongoing management afterwards. See, that's, see, you just fill me with fear, Brendan, when you say things like that, because this is only the beginning of the conversation about re- recovery and rehabilitation. Um, the, so the NHS COVID-19 recovery plan is hopefully to be published later on this week in its first iteration. And while it has a huge multidisciplinary team uh, proponent to it, it has, as it has to be, there is the assumption that some of our tracheostomized patients are going to need to be weaned in enhanced community rehabilitation centers as in outside the intensive care, outside our, our hospitals, because it will take a long time to wean them. But you're suggesting that actually not only has ventilation been a major problem for these patients, we're expecting tracky weaning and tracky decannulation to be not quite so simple because even our, our speech and language therapists are going to be, have to operate without half their tools. Yeah, and we've already seen anecdotes, and I think I've seen one thing in the literature about airway edema and, and possibly a sort of laryngitis element to this disease. And, and, and you know, anecdotally, there's a lot of failed extubations, there's a lot of stridor, and I think some of these patients are, are ending up with tracheostomies. And so the upper airway after prolonged mechanical ventilation and, and possibly even more so in this disease uh, doesn't work so well uh, because of disuse, because of tube trauma, because of occult laryngeal injury, and then possibly because of direct effects uh, in, in some patients fr- from this disease. And so trying to wean and decannulate these patients, even if I think they were under our noses in hospital and, and we weren't worried about infection, uh, is potentially challenging. Um, so while some patients will surely be straightforward, um, that, that they're a, a challenging group to get right. Um, I think what we'll find is, is that we have probably what we'd all consider would be the, the sort of gold standard wean, this, this full multidisciplinary team, uh, making sure it's safe and appropriate to, to decandidate these patients. But depending on where they end up getting managed, we, we may have to compromise some of them. But I certainly think that, that as we learn this sort of next phase in the the, the, the disease, you know, we've, we've, we've worked out how to get lots of people intubated. We've talked a lot about how to get the right people tracking at the right time. It, we're very much at the phase now of now what? And, and although we have our ideas about what is best practice and, 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 and how we'd like to do it, we may find the practicalities of, of where we need to do it, the volume of patients, and then some of that infectivity risk, um, w- which may still be relevant for some of these patients. Uh, it, it, you know, it's going to be an evolving piece of work, I think, how, how it's best to, to, to wean these patients. Okay, well, I'm, gosh, Brenda, we had such a nice uh, start to this conversation where we thought we had a good idea, we had a plan, 
we now know how to do things and we were going to finish off with this level of uncertainty about how we're going to decannulate our patients. Do you think there'll be some guidance nationally on this or are we going to have to, or is this going to be an iterative process of learning for us? Uh, a little bit of both. So uh, I'm aware of international guidance, which is sitting with the journal now. Um, we have got lots of Little bits of guidance, which are uh, generally helpful from individual surgical groups, from speech and language therapists uh, that, that, that I've seen from, from different countries. Um, I, I, one of my roles and our role in the National Tracking Safety Project is to try and put some of this together as quickly as we can and, and get it out there we, because we think it may help sites who are struggling with all these questions of, you know, where do I do it? How do I do it? Do I need to isolate these patients? Can we do close suction? Do we need to wear PPE when at the bedside? So there's a lot of really relevant questions for staff on the ground managing these patients, which which, which we're trying to synthesise as quickly as we can and, and make that as widely available as we can. Um, I think it's important to collect data. I think it would be remiss of me not to mention things like the Global Tracheostomy Collaborative, which has got a patient-level database so we can follow our own patients and, and learn from other sites. I think some of these patients will be pretty straightforward, but I think we, we don't fully understand this particular cohort yet with this disease. Um, and, and I think it's important to share information. I think it's important to talk to each other. And, and I'm sure best practice for we and these patients, uh, it, it's based on the principles that we do already, but but it will evolve. And, and there are some caveats, I think, to successfully weaning and decannulating these patients, which I think will become more apparent over the next uh, few weeks. Great, Brendan. Thank you very much. Julia, thank you very much. I guess we'll call it a day there, Julia. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>